So if you have a Bible, we will continue that effort uh, by opening God's Word together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll begin or pick up down in verse number 17 this evening. Uh, we will, uh, I think, see a bigger picture begin to form uh, on the heels of what has been a very specific conversation over the last couple of weeks. So we've learned a lot from Paul and from God's word over the last couple of weeks about how, about how God has designed humanity. Uh, and, and that includes, uh, he has a specific design for our bodies and for what we do with our bodies and with whom we intimately share our bodies. So we, yeah, we've had some pretty personal conversations the last couple of weeks because the Bible has a a ton to say uh, about sexuality and morality. Uh, God didn't just design our souls, but he designed our bodies. And contrary to what many assume, our flesh and our souls are very much connected and impacted by each other. Uh, sex and relational matters are not just physical things, but they are, uh, they're not just external things, but they are spiritual ideals. They are gifts from God and they must be handled though as the way God prescribed them to be handled. So that's why we pay attention to the Bible, uh, what it has to say about morality and relationships and marriages, because we are very vulnerable in these areas, uh, very fragile in these areas. And if we go about trying to get the most out of life, uh, and if we do not consider God's will and God's sacred plans regarding sexuality and morality, we will always come up empty and we will always come up unfulfilled. So that's why we've had these conversations, regardless of where you're at in your life and how long you've been married, how long you haven't been, all those different scenarios that may be relevant to you or pertinent to you. We've had these conversations because we need to be equipped to share with other people who may not know anything about how God has to, what God has to say about this, these matters. Because there's a lot of people in our world that just think that there's no connection between their faith and what they do with their bodies and who they join their bodies to. And, and of course, there's a lot to say from God's word about those things, but God's people need to be more informed about those things and need to be more prepared to speak on those matters uh, and not just quote verses that we don't really know what they mean, but be ready to talk about what the Bible says. So we know, and, and of course, I think we knew before these last couple of services that we must consider God's plan if we're going to be fulfilled. Uh, but we've learned very clearly that this applies to if we have pre-existing wounds, uh, we need them to be healed before we enter in a relationship or continue in our relationships. Uh, if we get wounded because of a relationship uh, and, and we don't allow God to heal those things or and help us in those areas, we will be, uh, th those wounds will be exposed and we will only uh, become more sensitive over time. If we, we need to know, and, and regardless of, of how clean we've been and pure we've been, we're all prone to and open to stumbling in these very sensitive areas. So I hope that we've all taken note of God's word and, and uh, we've all, uh, regardless of where we're at on the relationship spectrum, single, married, divorced, remarried, widowed, and all the things you may be in between, uh, we need, all of us need to let God tend to our hearts and become more passionate for him before we tend to the desires of our flesh. Yes, we're all given that, that instinct by God to, to want to be with people and want to have a relationship, yet there's a right way and there's plenty of wrong ways and we need to let God lead us in what is right. And, and remember, Paul has been teaching us in 1 Corinthians at large uh, about how the world is perverse, but his goal is that the church would be equipped to, that the church might would be a beacon of light and showcase the Christian ethic and the moral standard that yes, the world has gone in a lot of wrong directions, but it's not just in the 21st century. We're reading about it in the first century. 
But remember back in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, it's not my business to judge outsiders. And this is a, a, a conversation we had, a long, had for a long time the last couple of weeks, is that Paul reveals to us his approach to combating sin in the surrounding culture. And Paul has taught us the last couple of weeks about this very specific thing, that the church that spends more time reviewing its own moral character in the mirror and not just looking out the window at how bad the world is, Paul says the church that looks in the mirror and keeps its own character clean is prepared to be a true and effective light for the world. Yes, it's dark out there. Yes, there's a lot of perversion and things that are wrong, but the church that is not looking itself in the mirror and living up to the standard that God has laid out for us is wasting its time if it's only consuming, considering what's going on out there and not considering what God is doing or hasn't yet done in here. So that's why Paul does not spend chapter 7 ripping uh, uh, and, and, and railing against other sexual lifestyles that are not uh, not right, but he spends chapter 7 talking to Christians about what our marriages look like, talking to single people about how you should prepare for marriage, talking to widowed people, talking to divorced people, talking to people who have come from broken homes. He doesn't spend chapter 7 talking about all the bad people out there who are the problem. He says, hey church, let's get our homes right, let's get our relationships right so that we can be a light for the world because it's only through our relationships being rightly aligned with God's word that we are even equipped to talk to the outside world about what is right and what is wrong and they won't even listen to us and we'll have no moral authority if we aren't in line with that so that's what we aspire to do here as well but something we also aspire to do is to make ourselves more and more sensitive most sensitive to God's guidance over our lives God's rule over our lives not just in the moral part of things which is very important but every area in the areas we've been discussing, but in every area as well. So as we segue out of last week's topic, as Paul does as well, I want to follow his words beginning in verse 17. And a few verses stand out and summarize his, the manner in which he conducted his life, not just morally, of course, including that, but in every area. And I want you to listen to how he admonishes us to live our lives and the place he wants us to live our lives from. So I want to read verse 17, verse 20, and 24. And, and the reason why I'm skipping a couple of verses is he, he's going to make a statement. He's going to give an example. He's going to make the same statement. Basically, again, he's going to give him examples, and then he's going to make the same statement again. And I want to look at the statement, and then we'll talk about the examples. And the statement, will, it'll sound the same because he pretty much repeats himself three times, which means it should be important, right? So verse 17. But as God has distributed to each person, each one, as the Lord has called each one, let him or her walk or live their lives. And so I ordain in all the churches. So he is making a statement for every church in every time period for, for, for days to come. So he, what does he say? As God has distributed to each one, that basically means that God has poured into your life and designed you and placed you and, and, and put you in this world as a unique person with certain features, certain things that are, that are you know, inside and outside of you, circumstances that have affected you. God has designed you and God has placed you in a certain position. And he says, so let the person live, walk, and then he says in verse 20 again, let each one remain in the same calling. So now he doesn't just say, let him live, but he says, remain there or stay there or 
Be focused on what God has given you to do where you are. Not just looking down the road or looking over your shoulder, but what's going on right here, right now. Let him remain in the same calling in which, you, in which he was called. So he, he emphasizes a calling that we all have been given, a purpose we all have. In verse 24, you'll find this familiar. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state or in the place in which he or in which she was called. So every one of us has been called by God, given a purpose from God. And it's not something that we haven't yet been able to reach. It's not something that we've messed up so bad, we've went past it. But right here, right now, where you are in your life, this is something that Paul clearly wants us to get, isn't it? I mean, he repeats it three times. So I think that's, uh, you know, biblical numerology. I think that's a big deal, right? Three times should get our attention. So he gives us some specific examples uh, about what he means by condition or state or status. And he, he uses some general state of being, some that made sense to them that might not make sense to us. But essentially, it, it, he's making this statement that none of us are at a disadvantage to serve God do or as a result of his sovereign placement in our lives. So do you get the idea that what he's saying here? That none of you, regardless of what you may think about your life, regardless of what you wish would be or wasn't, or what you wish you could undo, or what you wish you could make happen tomorrow without waiting longer, none of us are at a disadvantage to serve God. Now, someone may look like they're more positioned than you. Someone may look like they're more equipped than you. Everybody may be at a different place. And that's the point of this, is that all of us are positioned differently. And yes, there's preparation that's required in any walk of life. But what he's trying to get us to understand is that preparation should not wait. But right here, right now, we should step up to what God is calling us to do or how God is calling us to live. That God has placed us and we are not at a disadvantage. Now, this may, be, this may challenge the way we see the world, but I would argue it's a good thing. Uh, but Paul talks about the things that we can't change about ourselves. That there are some things that are innate to our being pertaining to the things that we did not step into, but rather were placed into. And there's one thing here that might be a little bit challenging for us because we just see the world differently. But he mentions in verse 18, he mentions race. Now he, he uses the word circumcised and uncircumcised and he's saying to the Jews and he's saying to the Gentiles, hey, Jews, you are uniquely, fearfully, and wonderfully made. You've been called by God to serve God. And he says to Gentiles, you've been called just the same. But he's saying, because in the early church age, there was this tension between between Jews and Gentiles. Jews thought they were more favored, that they were more positioned to serve God. And they looked down on the Gentiles because, oh, you're not, you're not from Jerusalem. You've never read Moses. You're not circumcised. Well, you're not as better. You're not as holy as me. You're not as favored as me. You can't serve God like I serve God. And, and many of the Gentiles believe that lie. Many of the Gentiles bought into that nonsense. And Paul's saying to both sides, Jews, yes, you've been given a position of favor, but that doesn't mean that that you're any better than the Gentiles. And he says to the Gentiles, yes, they may have a little bit more knowledge than you, but you're just as capable as they are because all of us have been called by God where we are at. So by as if it needs to be said, but yet clearly in our world, there are people who don't believe this. Our race, our culture, our ethnicity is not, none of us are more advantaged than the other. All of us, as God has designed us, are as capable of serving God and as called by God. Now, again, we believe, obviously, we we don't believe in uh, inferiority. We don't believe in superiority by race. But in the early church world, they did, and plenty in the world do. But Paul wants us to understand that the basic things that we've stepped into or been placed into in life, 
that that's not a disadvantage and that's not an advantage over someone else, that all of us uniquely, individually have an opportunity to serve God. And we were born with that identity. Therefore, we can serve God from that identity and that's a glorious thing. He also mentions in verse 21, slavery and free. Now, when we hear slavery, we think of the awful racial-based slavery, but this is not what he's talking about. In the, in the first century, there was no middle class. So we, most of, all of us, right, you know, we drove here in our own cars, uh, but we didn't fly here in our planes. So that must mean that we're, we're not super, super rich, right? And I don't know everybody's finances, but hey, if you, you've got a lot of money, I will talk after the service, we can do some stuff with it. But I'm assuming most of us, hey, we're doing well for ourselves, but we, you know, we're, we're not, we don't own the world, right? But in the, in the first century, the reality was you were either super, super, super rich or you were super, super, super poor. And, and the way it played out was you either, were a slave owner or you were a slave. And they weren't, they weren't slaves based on race, it was based on status. That the wealthy people, they didn't just have employees, they had servants. And the servants didn't just you know, work for them, they belonged to them. So I bring that up because in the first century world, you were either a rich slave owner or you were a poor slave. So what is Paul saying here in verse, eight, verse, verse 21? That just because you might think you might think I'm, I'm poor, I'm a slave, I don't have any rights or any 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 of my own uh, you know agency, just because you think that you've been told you're not worth something, you're not able to do as much as others, doesn't mean you can't serve God, and doesn't mean that you aren't as valuable to God as somebody else who may have tons of more money than you. But he also says to the wealthy person, just because you've accomplished a lot in this world, doesn't mean that you have reached your peak. Because you can still do things for the Lord. You still have a job to do for God. And just because you have a lot on this side does not mean that God is impressed with that at all. But do you see what God is doing here? He's saying to both statuses, you can serve God and you must serve God. Now, again, that's a little bit of a, of a tense thing to hear from a slave perspective because, hey, they wanted freedom. And Paul advocated for freedom. And the reason why the Roman, Roman Empire fell apart is because eventually the Christian slave owners let their slaves free. And it ruined the economy because as people got saved, they realized we can't own people. That's not right. And they destroyed the economy by letting people free and letting people go. But I think we can learn from that as Christians is that the Bible says here that regardless of the status that we may be placed in, and, and again, we as Americans think, well, if somebody, somebody can just work hard and get themselves out of that, we don't know what people are going through, and we should be sensitive to that. But the reality here is, this isn't a message of whether you should be poor or whether you should be rich. The message is here that the statuses we're born into, the families we we're born into, no one's at it advantage over the other and no one's at a disadvantage against the other. Paul includes economic status in the same breath as race, both things that you would have been born into in the first century world, things that you really couldn't change. Of course, you can't change your race, but even your economic status in those days, you couldn't change it. You were pretty much going to be in that status for the rest of your life and your children and your grandchildren would too. You were either born in generational wealth or you were born in generational slavery or poor or, or poverty. Neither are inhibitors for God to work in our lives is the message. 
He's coming off of talking about God's design for sexuality. And we talked about how we're born in God's image as either a man or a woman. And we are destined to glorify God as a man or as a woman. And we can partner with an opposite gender to reflect the full image of God. But Paul makes it clear in this passage, in the next passage, that some aren't meant to marry. Some suffer from broken marriages. Some lose their mates far too soon. And all that brings us to the next passage. And as Paul has talked about marital status, economic status, our ethnicity and our race and he places all of us in those categories he places all of us under the banner of God's sovereignty under and in God's placement so what's that mean it means that Paul believes God places us with the right person or rather he keeps us to ourselves as in God made us he designed us we are the image that we are because of God's design we're put in the world in the place that we're at because of God's choice And that may be easier on some, harder on others. But ultimately, God is sovereign in his placement. And we can find comfort because of that. Now, Paul's trying to impress on us that we would trust in God's placement and God's guidance. It's not saying that we shouldn't have ambition, but it's trying to make us understand that we don't have to wait on something to change in order to serve God. We can serve God now. And if things never change for us, we can still serve God. And we have all the more reason to serve God in the place we have been called. That's why in verse 17 and 20 and 24, he repeats himself three times. God has called us. Let us walk. Let us remain. Let us serve God in that place. Now, I think that something that, that we, we glean from this text is that Paul is advocating that all Christians desire and attain a heart of contentment. A lot of us, we can be sidetracked and we can be detoured from serving God because we're so caught up in serving ourselves and chasing the world and maybe looking over our shoulders and being guilt-ridden over something that we did before. Or maybe we're looking into the future, worried about something happening that we really wish would. Paul is trying to get every Christian to learn how to be content. Now, let me explain contentment because it might be different than what you've been taught or what you've thought it to be. Contentment is not passiveness. So contentment is not, well, I'm just sitting here and I don't really care what happens. No, contentment is a radical dependence on God. It's not just laissez-faire, I don't care, I'm just waiting it out. It's, hey, I'm actively seeking God. I'm depending on him to, to lead me and guide me. So this dependence is that we are in tune with him. We dare not push a door open that he isn't opening. Do you hear me on that? That contentment says, yeah, I might want to go through that door, but if God has locked the door, I'm not going to keep beating on it, right? That's contentment. God is sovereign. If he shut that door, then that's God's will. But also, if God's spirit is moving, we can't stand still. Do you see how important it is to be insensitive to God, sensitive to God and to be in God's word? Because we need to know, is God moving or is he causing us to stand still? If, if we aren't in tune with God and, and we aren't content with where God has called us and aren't serving God where God has called us, we'll never know whether we should stay or whether we should move because ultimately we aren't in tune with his sovereign hand. Another thing about contentment, contentment is not caution, it's sensitivity. So contentment isn't, well, I don't know about that, or I'm worried about that, or I might just, I'm a little bit precautious. No, contentment is not being cautious. Contentment is being sensitive to God's plans. Now, now Paul taught about contentment in another place in Philippians 4, and listen to these verses, and we'll break these down. Philippians 4, verse 11, Paul says, 
I am not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now listen, you may say, Paul, I don't think you should be content in that situation. But Paul says, hey, I'm the one writing the book, so we should listen to him. In whatever situation. So what is Paul saying here? As we look at verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, we hear these state, say these words, remain with God, serve God. God has called you. That we're in whatever situation you're in, God is wanting to work in your life. And again, I'm not saying you aren't praying for things to change. I'm not saying you aren't working for things to change. I'm not saying that there aren't things you could have done or you maybe you didn't do. But the reality of it is, Paul says, I have learned that right now today, in whatever situation I'm in, I can be content and I can serve God where I'm at. Now listen to, how he, listen to what the implications of that are in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Now, who is Paul? Who is doing the bringing low and abounding in Paul's life? It's God. Now, you may say, well, it's wrong. It's somebody else. No. Paul said, hey, if God brings me low, then I'm content to be low. If God brings me high, then hey, God, to God be the glory. But look at what he says at the end of that verse. Let's go back. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says, hey, there's been seasons of my life where I, did, I, I was in a jail cell and I had nothing to eat. I was starving and I was content. I was writing letters to people, to churches and Christians. And I wasn't waiting to get out of jail. I was serving God right where I was. I was being beaten and shipwrecked and being thrown to the wolves. And yet I served God in that area of need. And there'd been times where I had all that I could ever imagine, but that didn't go to my head and make me think I should take a day off. I kept serving God in that time of abundance. I didn't say, hey, I can take a few weeks off. I don't need to keep praying and studying and serving. I've done enough. Good for me. He says, no, I kept serving God because wherein I was called, I was called to serve. And I didn't get too big for my job and I didn't get too low for my job. Isn't that a, a heart to serve God? Now, listen, I don't know about you. I don't know what you've been through up and down and, and, and all the things in between. But listen, it takes a dedication to have this kind of contentment, doesn't it? Now look at what Paul says in that verse 13. You all know the verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that means, hey, that's not just, hey, I can score a, field, I can score a touchdown because I'm the, strong, I'm the best player on the field. That means, hey, if I'm in prison and I'm suffering, I can do it for the glory of God. Wherever God puts me, I am there to serve him and I'm content to serve him there. I can do all things. I can suffer I can prosper. I can have a lot. I can have nothing at all. I can do all things through Christ. It's not standing still. It's moving in whatever direction God takes us. It's bold faith and radical trust in God that gets us to this place. This is where, it's lead. this is where all this is leading us tonight. That's exactly what Paul is calling for here. Again, not just in our personal relational lives, but in every area of our lives. So in this next section, he's gonna say to single people, Trust God for the right person. Don't force it with the wrong person. It won't work. And not only that, it won't be right. And then he's going to say to married people, hey, unless you ended up there through unholy means, you're married to the person that God puts you with. Don't suppose that happiness is found elsewhere. Because again, if we're dependent on God, we understand that wherein he places us, it's for a purpose. And it's for our purpose. 
So that's why in verses 25 through 28, he's going to talk about single people and married people and why you should stay single or why you should stay married. Now, it's easy to get lost in the weeds of what Paul is saying, but what he's telling us is, hey, it's better to not be married or it's best to remain married. But again, what he's trying to do here is to get us to focus on God's purpose, not just for our lives, but in our lives. And there's a difference. God is at work in our lives in the ways that he has sovereignly placed us. You know why there's so much confusion about sexuality and gender in the world? Even a misunderstanding of when it comes to how God is glorified in the nations and how God can use anyone of any status, not just wealthy, successful people. Because so many of us, all of us as Christians are guilty of this. We all are guilty of chasing after God's purpose for us and we miss that by looking in the mirror, purpose is staring right back at us. Do you follow me there? That for a lot of us, we're waiting on something to get perfect in our lives to serve God. Oh, when this gets, when I marry this person or when this happens in my family or when I make this amount of money or when I get this job or when things go like this at my church, then I can serve God. We're looking down the road and we're not looking in the mirror because purpose is staring right at us. Because purpose is not on the outside, purpose is planted on the inside. God has a purpose he wants to work in us and through us as men, as women, as members of whatever culture and race, however we fit into society. We aren't chasing some imaginary standard where God can start using us and working in us from the very onset based on who God has made us and where he has placed us. God has embedded purpose in our lives, in our person. This is why, this is why the Bible has so much to say about the very fine and basic principles, practical areas of life. Because God wants to work through every angle of our lives so that we can, be, we can communicate him and glorify him through, the general, through our general lives, through the broadest of audiences. There's never a verse that says, maybe one day you can serve God if you meet the right person, if you make the right amount of money, if things go a certain way. No, every passage of the Bible speaks to us in the practical areas of life. Be the person God's called you to be to the glory of God because you have an audience all around you. Now that leads us to verse 29 through 31. And this might be the most convicting passage nobody's ever read. And you may, maybe you've read it before, but I don't believe you've ever, most of us have not looked at it the way I want us to look at it tonight or at least studied it as we should. At first, it's going to sound like Paul is out of touch, but what actually is here is something that can transform us. So here, verse 29 through 31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives or husbands, even those that are married, even those that are married should be as though they have none or are not married. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Paul says, I'm being so serious about understanding your placement, your God-given status, and discovering the purpose God has placed you into. 
He says, in short, the appointed time has grown very short. So here's why you should pay attention to this. Here's why serving God where you are at and understanding the real reason you've been placed where you are, the real reason, not the reason you've come up with or the reason America or some other society has told you you're there. The reason why God has placed you there, it's so important you realize this. So no matter how old you are, how experienced you are, how inexperienced you are, this is so important to hear. So hear this so clearly, if you will. The appointed time has grown very short. The time is short. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that he thought the end of time was imminent, even though it always could be. Because as we know, it's been 2,000 years since he wrote this. What he means is that all of us have a predetermined, finite period of time wherein we've been placed to serve God and glorify God with our lives. I think we can all agree on that, can't we? And maybe it seems, maybe it doesn't seem that way to you. Maybe you don't think about it that way. Maybe you don't want to think about it that way. But all of us have a finite period of time wherein we've been given the opportunity to serve God and glorify God with our lives. Now, this echoes what we've been, what we talked about a few weeks ago on Sunday mornings for a while, but I think it bears repeating. You all are familiar with Psalms 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Now, the the hard thing about numbering our days is that nobody can look into the future and know how many days we're going to have. So what is Paul trying, what is Moses trying to say in that verse? He's trying to say that the day that we are living right now, as Paul has said, right here, right now, where we are called, understand the value of that day. Consider a common gravestone. Now, that's today's date, so I didn't want to make anybody think, hey, was that my birthday? We all know that on a gravestone, there is a starting date, a birth date, and then there's a dash. We don't know the second date, but we know that there's going to be a second date on the gravestone one day. We know the dash that began at our birth is not a continuous dash. It's going to run out. It's going to run into another day. It may be 100 years from birth. It may be generously long. It may be tragically short. But we know, we know the dash is going to run out. Another date will be inscribed on the gravestone or the plot or whatever it is that marks your grave. So what is Paul saying here? Knowing that we know, knowing what we know about God's sovereign placement and lordship, we need to live each day as if the dash is about to end. Now, that might be the most expected thing for you to hear at church you would ever hear, but it can't be stated, I believe, more truthfully, not because I wrote it, but because it's it's just the truth, right? I know that's morbid, that's contrary to everything we plan for and pray for, but come on, this is so important and so inspiring, and this is what Paul is talking about in this passage. So many of us live as if purpose is on the other side of some answered prayer, some miraculous occurrence. We act as if purpose in our ability to serve God depends on X, Y, and Z happening just perfectly. And when something doesn't go right, well, it's back to waiting on something to get worked out and then we'll serve God. Then we'll give or then we'll do or then we'll act. We act as if purpose is on the other side of something when it's really on the inside of who we already are. 
And it's up to us to decide to choose and declare, I'm going to serve God right now with my life. I'm not going to delay things over what really are just excuses. I say I'm waiting on A, B, and C to happen, but the train of thought is really just holding me back. Right now, I know the dash could end tomorrow. The time is short. Listen, for better or worse, y'all can judge me and y'all can be the judge and God will one day, but that's why I ended up in ministry at 19. Not because I thought I was prepared for it. I wasn't, and I'm still barely. But that line of thinking and that line of prayer is what got me into ministry. Now, if you don't know the story, I was really struggling with my calling. I couldn't shake it from my mind. I, I had announced my calling uh, at 17. Uh, I was going to school. I, was, I had preached three times in my life across those two years. And of course, for any 17, 18-year-old, that's a lot. And that's probably more than you should be allowed to preach, right? If, if, if people know any better. But, but I had no sense of direction. Um, and I had a few influencers in my life, uh, 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 my pastor, Larry Chapman, and, and uh, a teacher, Jeremy, and, and, and uh, another pastor I had been acquainted with, Bud Painter. Uh, and they were all very encouraging. They were all very supportive, but they made it very clear to me, hey, you've got to trust God, Justin. Your story is different than our story. You've got to trust God. Don't put limits on God. Don't bring your own plans to God. Because again, when you're, when you're at that age, you're thinking education versus no education, staying at your home church, going somewhere else. What do you do? And all that was weighing on me. And a lot of people just told me, hey, Justin, you're 19. I mean, you know, you'll be, when you're 25 or 30 or 35, 40, you'll be plenty, have plenty of time to preach and pastor or whatever you feel like you're supposed to do. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, but I knew I was called to do something. Eventually, I became convinced that preaching indefinitely, pastoring would just be something I would slowly work my way into because, again, that's how it works, right? You're 19, Justin, and I didn't think I was, I didn't, I didn't think I deserved the opportunity. I just felt like I had a calling that I needed to figure out what it was supposed to be like, regardless of what it was going to look like today that might be different than the next year and the next year. I just had to figure out what God wanted me to do then at 19 because I was more, con- I was concerned about, hey, what, what can I do now? So again, as I began to think about it and people began to talk to me, I, I realized, and I was in school with people that were, you know, they were planning on being pastors one day, but they were looking into their 30s and 40s for all that because, hey, you're just 19. You can just live a little bit. And again, nothing wrong with that line of thinking, but God had called me and he wasn't going to wait to use me. That was my, my, my idea. God wasn't going to wait to use me at a certain age, whether I was married or credentialed. Uh, if the way he used me might change, that's fine. But how does he want to use me right now? And I'll be honest with you, in my, my Bible that I used as a teenager that I studied when I went to my home church, um, verse number 17 and 20 and 24 are highlighted in that Bible. It's in my, on my shelf in my office. Because I would look at this passage and I would read these verses and I would say, okay, God, how do you want to use me right now? Right now. So I remember um, it was one morning, it was either February or March of 2010. Um, it was already starting to feel like spring outside. But early on in that year, I remember praying. I remember where I was when I prayed it. God, I don't know how you want to use me. And I don't know, I don't, know where you're going to take me, but I don't want to wait to answer your call. And, and I prayed this prayer. Now is the appointed time. Lead, guide, and direct me. 
I, I prayed that prayer while getting ready for class one morning at my parents' house. And, and, and would you believe, and again, this is my story. It's not everybody's story. And I don't say that everybody's story has to be the same way as mine. But I prayed that prayer without any preaching opportunities, without any scheduled opportunities. Again, I was 19. Why would I have any? I prayed that prayer without any idea of what was going to happen in my future. And, by, and as of April of that year, I haven't went more than a week without preaching across the last 12 and a half years. Now, I prayed that prayer in March of 2010. I had no contact. I didn't think I deserved any. I'm not trying to say I, I should have, but hey, I prayed that prayer in beginning in April of, 20, of 2010 all the way to right now. I think I might have had maybe three weeks off since then. And again, I have an, not every service, not three times a week, but at least once a week. But my point is, that's not how it works for everybody, and maybe I had no business at that age, but God was in charge of all of it, and I simply gave him the range, and he could have put me in a situation that was completely different than what he did, and it would have been just as sufficient, but he did what he did. I haven't went so much again as a week without preaching over the last 12 and a half years. I remember in January of that year saying, I know I'm called, but I don't know what to do, but I was I came to the conclusion, all I can do is pray and prepare, pray and prepare, and be ready. It turns out that's exactly what and the only thing I needed to be doing the whole time. I, I think that's a good starting point for all of us. Again, listen to what Paul says in verse 29 and 30, and we'll break this down and we'll close. He says, life, the time is short, so from now on, even those who have wives or husbands should be as or should live as though they had none. Now, what does he mean by that? We'll talk about it. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Now, here's what he's saying. That we should live as if, live as if now is the appointed time to serve God and not ourselves. What is, what is he saying with these examples? Live as if your marriage is bigger than whatever earthly dreams you have. Live as if your marriage is more than just what you can put on a shelf in a picture. Live as if you're married for the kingdom of God. Live as if when everything is going wrong and you're mourning your losses, live as if you're not held back by those losses. Live as if when all things are going good for you, that the good is not only what propels you forward, but every circumstance propels you forward. Live as if all that you have and all that you obtain is not yours to keep and not for your gain, but for God and his kingdom. Do you see what he's saying here? Live as if all of who you are and all of what you go through, good or bad, busy or dull, live as if it all matters for eternity. Live every single day considering how every single moment matters eternally. Christians, prioritize your earthly affairs with eternity in mind. The dash is short, so don't push off purpose. We live as if purpose can be found in all that we are, in all that we do, because it can be and it must be. The world is passing away, and we can't wait for some idealized version of our lives to manifest if we are going to serve God comfortably and conveniently. Purpose is never found in comfort, and it's never found in convenient. It's found often in the fog, in the mundane, when we surrender all that we have to all that God has for us.
That means we take our time to him, our relationships to him, our money to him, our plans to him, our dreams to him. Come on, don't just bring God your leftovers. Because if all you bring to God are your leftovers, there won't be anything left over when you enter eternity because you would have spent it all on things that are now passed away. That's why Paul says, don't live as if the end all be all is the earthly affairs. Those earthly affairs were given to you for the glory of God. They're not stumbling blocks. They're not distractions. They're purpose. Your families, your tragedies, your successes, your treasures. All that you have, all that happens to you, all that's given to you, good or bad, struggling or successful, all of that is a part of God's purpose. See what he wants to do where you are right now. Don't wait for things to get less busy, for things to get more stable, for things to get ironed out. So what's keeping you? What's keeping you from living as if this world is passing away, fading away, as if the dash is going to end tomorrow? That doesn't dismiss, the, dismiss or ignore your family, your job, your responsibility. It means you double down on what God's put in your life, where he's placed you. You don't look for purpose down the road. You look at it in the mirror, across the table, in the room, wherever you are, whomever, whomever you are with. It's right there and live as if nobody and none of it was given to you on accident. It was given to you on purpose. It happened to you on purpose. And God wants to work in it. Live as if time is short. Everyone and everything in our life and everywhere we go is a field in which to labor for God. Whether we're in a field full of tears or a field full of success, busy, or struggling. Regardless of where you are, the obligation on your shoulders is to live as if now is the appointed time. How can we glorify God now? Not down the road, not when things get straightened out. Right here, right now. That's what this chapter is all about. And Paul says with a loud voice, now is the appointed time. This world is passing and fading away. So what's keeping you from living as if the dash is about to end? Because that is the difference in living as if. Purpose is not down the road, but right here, right now. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We're thankful that you come to us regardless of where we're at. And Lord, for some of us, this is encouraging because we don't think that you can serve. We don't think that you can work in our lives right now because we think things are too messy. For some of us, this is challenging because we're so busy and we've got so much else going on. But regardless of where this lands, all of us have heard a reminder from you that purpose is not down the road. Purpose is inside. Purpose is right in front of us. Lord, would you use and guide and direct all of us? Would you show all of us how we might serve you with our lives? Because now is the appointed time. Time is short. So we want to make sure we make the most of every single moment for your glory and for the kingdom's gain. We ask this in Jesus' name.